0: Hey Amen. You may be seated. And uh, as you're getting settled, go ahead and grab your Bibles and meet me in Acts chapter 13. And good morning to you. Um, if we haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, uh, my name is Mike Kezrowski. I'm the lead pastor here at FAC. And I, I would just love to meet you after service. Uh, I know how difficult and intimidating it might be to be in an unfamiliar place if you're new here with unfamiliar faces, let alone unfamiliar faces that are covered in face masks. Uh, no less. Uh, but we want to make it as easy as possible for you to connect and feel welcome. And, and so the invitation is open to you after service. Uh, I'm usually hanging up out up front here. Uh, I'd love for you to join me and just say hi and uh, hear a little bit about who you are. And so this morning we'll be starting in Acts 13 verses 42 through 52. We've been working through Acts uh, as a whole this year. Uh, If you're just joining us, and really, we've been in Acts 13 for like the last five weeks. It feels like eternity, but here we are. We're going to finish it this morning. Um, I'll go ahead and read the passage, and you can follow along as I read, and then I'll pray, and we'll begin. Let's take a look at it together. Acts 13, verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews... And devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, Father, your scripture tells us that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, we acknowledge that we live in a very dark world and we long for a light. And so this morning, Father, as we look to the light that is your word uh, so that we may see, would the Holy Spirit take these inspired words from the text, your inspired words, Father, and would the Holy Spirit illuminate them in our minds and hearts so that we may know you fully. In your Son, Jesus' name we pray, amen. When we gather together to study scripture, or even better yet, when when you're studying scripture on your own personally, it's Always appropriate to ask the question, how does this passage apply to me today? What is something that I can do today as a result of studying this passage? And in certain passages of Scripture, the answer to that question comes a little bit easier, a little bit more naturally, if you will, And then there are other passages that you come across and they may leave you scratching your head, wondering how on earth uh, does this apply to me in my world, in my context? I want to give you a fair warning today that as we look at today's passage, it may be one of the ones that are a little more difficult to answer that question. How does this apply to me today? Now, before I lose you, And before you decide to take about a 30-minute cat nap, I would like you to hear me out on why passages like these are so important and why we need to do our due diligence to know them and understand them and study them. Last week, we spoke about how God has been revealing himself through human history. And we took a look at the, the sermon that Paul preached in the synagogue to Jewish people and In the climax of Paul's sermon, Paul explained that Jesus was the climax of all history. That Jesus was the full and complete revelation of God. And so in other words, what we determined last week is that God has given us a grand picture of himself. God has given us all of the pieces necessary that we need to see Him in order to know Him. When we open up the word on Sunday mornings and we let God's work speak for itself, we let God's word determine the subject matter in our time of study. It's our hope that we would see this grand story, this grand revelation, this grand picture. We, we want to learn the whole counsel of God. We want to learn the whole biblical narrative, the full revelation of God. And so why do we need to know and understand passages like this? When I'm sitting here struggling to, term, to determine how it applies to me today. Here's the reason why. Because not only do I want to understand the complete picture of God, as it were, I also want to understand how each piece of Scripture fits into the complete picture of God. I want us to know as a church how each piece of the puzzle contributes to the whole picture, how it contributes to the whole biblical narrative. And so to show contempt for passages like this, when we can't quite pinpoint a direct application sometimes, To show contempt for a passage like this is to say, I don't care if the final image is missing a few pieces. It's to say, I don't care that the puzzle isn't complete. Now, come on. You and I both know that one of the most irritating things in the world is to be working on a puzzle and get to the end, only to find out that there's pieces missing. And this is why we need to know this. This is how it applies to me today. Because if I don't have a complete picture at the end, if there are pieces of the puzzle puzzle missing at the end, then I am forced in my mind to fill in the blanks. And I'm either going to fill them in myself or I'm going to depend on somebody else to fill them for me. And the more pieces... That are missing, the higher probability there is that we will have a distorted view of God. And a distorted view of God is a dangerous way to live. So, with that, let's take a look at this story and how this piece of the story fits into God's overall story, the greater biblical narrative. Our passage begins this morning right on the tails of uh, a sermon from Paul as I mentioned. And if you remember, Paul just got done sharing in the synagogue that Jesus is the fulfillment of all their promises. And that Jesus was put to death although he was innocent, but God raised him from the dead, and then Paul explained that everyone who believes in Jesus will be free and is justified or made right before God. And then Paul ended the sermon with a warning to the scoffers. He said the scoffers are going to be the ones that, are, that perish. Now, now Paul's sermon must have had some kind of uh, impact on the people. It resonated with these people because we find at the beginning of our passage this morning that as they are leaving the synagogue, the people just begged them to come back. This message was so riveting and so explosive and so amazing that they just they needed to hear more about Jesus. Who is this guy? We need to have more. Uh, so Paul and Barnabas, would you come back? This would be like if we had a guest speaker and everybody was just so blown away by what he had to say that all of us, as, as they were making their way out, said, would you come back next week? You gave us a taste and now we want more. You just have to come back. And not only that, we we read that some of them followed Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas have earned themselves some stalkers here because throughout the week it's explaining uh, that they followed Paul and Barnabas and spoke with them and urged them to continue in, in the grace of God. They just won't leave Paul and Barnabas alone. Now, as a guest speaker in a synagogue, you would have to imagine that this would be a great encouragement for Paul and Barnabas, but then that quickly shifts. Something happens. Something changes in the Jews' mindset from week one, to where they're begging Paul and Barnabas to come back, and week two, where they actually, we find them slandering Paul and Barnabas, and they're even, they get to the point where they stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. So what happened? Well, in between those two Sabbath days, uh, there is so much stir in the city uh, over them and their message that the following week, we read that almost the whole city showed up to the synagogue. They gathered in the synagogue. And we have to remember that we are no longer in Judea, right? This is not primarily a Jewish region. And so to say that almost the whole city showed up to the, to, to the synagogue, was there. I would imagine that the Jewish people in this synagogue quickly became the minority. I would imagine that there were more Gentiles or what we would call non-Jewish people, Gentiles. There's more Gentiles in the synagogue at this point than there were Jews. And we read that a great jealousy arose. Now this seems like a strange response, doesn't it? This is odd. Because why on earth are they jealous? Weren't they the ones that invited Paul and Barnabas back? Weren't they the ones that kind of initiated such a response? Think about if that happened today. If next week, almost all of Erie showed up to FAC, we would be thrilled. That would be exciting. It would be worthy of celebration. But not so with these Jews. They were jealous. I'll explain why in a moment, but but such jealousy drives them to revile Paul and speak out against his message. They contradict him. They they speak an anti-gospel. And then Paul and Barnabas turn to them and, and, and they boldly address the Jewish community that has now come up against them. Right, this community, they admired Paul and Barnabas at first, and now they revile them. And Paul says, hey, we had to tell you the gospel first. It was necessary for us to share the message of Jesus, but now you have thrust it aside. This is another way of saying that you have rejected the message. To, to thrust it aside is as a graphic way of expressing their re- rejection. It's the, the picture that we get is, is them forcing it away, pushing it with a significant amount of force, shoving it out of the way. For whatever reason, the picture that I get in my head is that of a thief who has just robbed a store, and he's making off with money, and should anybody get in his way, he just thrusts them aside. He pushes them aside because they're going to get in the way of what they hope to accomplish. This is what the Jews are doing in this instance. They are thrusting, forcefully pushing the gospel away. And so Paul says, hey, since you've thrust the message aside, since you no longer want anything to do with it, we're going to turn our attention to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish community, and we're going to proclaim this message of salvation to them. You must not want it. And so we're going to find somebody who does. Now we'll revisit what Paul says here in depth in a moment. But what's important to note as we work through the story is the, the, that the Gentiles responded positively. Right, look at what it says. When the Jews rejected it, the Gentiles accepted it. They rejoiced in it and they, they glorified God. And those who were appointed, or another word that we could use, is elected to eternal life. They believed that day. That was the day that they came to faith in Jesus. And this drove the Jewish community mad. They were so angry to the point that they began to stir up trouble with the prominent leaders in the area. They go to women of influence and men of influence in order to create persecution to drive Paul and Barnabas out of the region. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned we'd come back to this about why on earth were they jealous? And uh, when you consider Paul's words to the Jewish community and the Gentile response, it helps us gain a clearer picture for why the Jewish community might have been so jealous. You see, their jealousy and their outrage seems to be directly a response to the fact that the Gentiles were saved. Their outrage was prompted by Gentile inclusion. They're offended by Paul allowing the Gentiles to be included in these promises, which were distinct expressions of Judaism. Judaism. They revile Paul for how he connects the Gentiles to Israel's God. They are angry and they're saying, hey, those promises that you speak about are our promises for our people. And you intend to include the Gentiles? This jealousy is rooted in the fact that they don't want the Gentiles to be the beneficiaries of the promises that God made to them as Jews. So in an organized effort, they drive Paul and Barnabas out of the area. They stir up emotion, right? Imagine it being election season, which it is. And what you, what you get in this time of year every four years is, is the stirring up of people. There's like this emotional stirring up and, and people say things and post things just to get a reaction out of people, just to stir the pot. This is what's happening here. The Jewish community is just stirring the pot. They're making people get riled up to force Paul and Barnabas out of the area. But we read in verses 51 and 52 that as they make their exit, they shook the dust off their feet. And they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit and the word of God spread to the whole region. Essentially, this persecution didn't phase them and it didn't phase the message going out, which we have seen from the very beginning in Acts. This, this act of shaking the dust off their feet is actually a symbolic action some of the most strict Jews upon entering Jerusalem their holy land would do this act they would shake off off their feet uh, as they traveled from abroad and it symbolized them leaving the impurities of an unholy land behind essentially they didn't want to bring uh, hypothetically the dust uh, from defiled places into the Holy Land so they would shake off their boots so the dust would fall down to the ground. And so there's a there's a turn of events here. As Paul and Barnabas shake off the dust towards this Jewish community, they are in a sense declaring that this community is no better than the unholy pagan territories that surround them. And Paul and Barnabas make their way to another community, to, to Iconium, which we'll look at in the coming weeks to continue their missionary journey. Now, I want to revisit what Paul says specifically to this Jewish community in the passage because it's a very important piece to the biblical narrative. Take a look with me back to verses 46 and 47. Once again, As the Jews reject Paul and Barnabas and the message of salvation that they bring, Paul turns to them. And this is what he says. He boldly proclaims to them, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." Paul makes this claim, and then he actually goes on to to support the claim by quoting Isaiah forty nine six. Um, this is where Paul introduces the concept of preaching the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. You'll see this theme throughout Scripture, and in these verses, Paul is giving a theological rationale for what they're doing in turning to the Gentiles. And so I want to break this down a little bit and what this actually means and what it means for us. First, Paul says that it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to the Jewish people first. Which prompts me to ask the question, why was it necessary? This isn't merely just preference. This is actually a necessity. We've seen this pattern on this journey that Paul and Barnabas have gone from synagogue to synagogue, and you may think that they did this for practical, pragmatic reasons. We think, well, Paul and Barnabas were Jewish, and so of course they would start with their own because it's a little bit easier, and they're in a little bit more familiar uh, territory, and and, and they know each other a little bit. and um, That may be so, But if it was merely strategic or practical in nature, I'm not sure Paul would say that it was necessary for the word to go to the Jews first. No, as we explore scripture, we see there's actually a greater theological reason for this. And Paul's letter to the Romans is actually a great help to us here. And so if you have your Bibles with me, I want to draw attention to Romans chapter 9. Would you, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 9? I real briefly just want to look at the first five verses. We don't have time to uh, dig in as deep as I'd like here, but if you'd like to do this on your own time, which I would strongly encourage you to do, Romans 9 through 11 really is all about What's happening here between the Gentiles and the Jews? And Paul is kind of explaining, giving a theological explanation for what's happening in Acts chapter 13. And so let's just, I want to look at a couple of passages from Romans starting in verses 1 to 5 to help us answer the question, why was it necessary for the word to go to the Jews first? Take a look at it with me. Uh, He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Once again, this is Paul writing these words, and I want to draw attention to Paul's heart towards the Jewish people. This is going to be a continual pattern as we continue through through Acts. Paul is going to preach the message of salvation to the Jews, and the Jews are going to reject him. They're, They're going to be hardened. Their hearts are going to be hardened towards God. And you would think that after enough persecution, Paul would be hardened towards them that he would be negatively affected in his relationship with the Jews. But here in Romans 9, Paul says, I have great sorrow. I have unceasing anguish for my brothers and sisters from Israel because they do not know Jesus. He goes as far to say, I would rather be cut off from Jesus if it meant my Israelite brothers and sisters would know him. That's how much I care about them. And then he goes on to explain here in Romans nine, why it was necessary for the word to go to the Jews first, and why He is in such anguish that they reject this message. It's because the, the covenants and the promises and this special relationship from God belong to them. The Jews had a right to those promises. These were their promises that were made to them. And Jesus, who is Jewish from their race, fulfilled these Jewish promises. Jesus inherently is a Jewish Messiah. So when the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed, the Jewish people, according to Paul, have priority. Since the the Christian gospel is the fulfillment of Jewish promises, God's promises to Israel. Jews everywhere have a right to hear what God has done for them and through them first. The gospel is a blessing, yes, to the whole world, but it must follow a prescribed order. And God's prescribed order for the delivery of the gospel is first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now, this doesn't mean that Jews are better than Gentiles or or more important than Gentiles. It just simply means that they're first. They're first in line to hear the message of salvation. When Jesus came to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand, he told it to the Jewish people first. It's like a recipe that calls for the ingredients to be added in a certain particular order. All of the ingredients are necessary. All of the ingredients are needed. All of the ingredients make up the dish as a whole, but you have to put them in a certain order. For God, it was first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. Paul tells the Jewish community that the promise and the fulfillment of the promise through Jesus came from you, so you have the honor and the privilege to hear this first. Take it or leave it, but know that if you leave it, You forfeit the promises and the blessings of God. If you reject it, then we will go to the Gentiles with it. And we'll see this throughout Acts, that there's this strange phenomenon that occurs that everywhere Paul goes, a vast majority of the Jewish people reject this message. And then Paul turns to the Gentiles. You see, for Paul, as heartbreaking, though, as it is for him to witness his brothers and sisters uh, reject the gospel, he actually comes to grips with the purpose behind it. And this is where where we come in. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul explains the implications and reasons for this rejection. Take a look with me to Romans 11, verses 11 through 12. Romans 11, verses 11 through 12. Once again, this is Paul writing, and he says, So I ask, did they stumble, in reference to Israel, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world... And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? According to Paul in Romans 11, the Jews rejected the gospel so that the message of salvation would come to the Gentiles. It was necessary that the Jews rejected it so that the Gentiles would hear. This was part of God's plan that the Jews would reject it so that the rest of the world would hear. Why did the Israelites have to reject the gospel? So it could go to the nations, which was Jesus' plan all along, right? Is that not what he said to his disciples before he left? Therefore, go and make disciples, of all nations. And Paul, he says, not only that, but this was God's plan of salvation from the very beginning. This was God's plan of salvation back to your prophets, to the age of the prophets. This was not an afterthought. This was not second best solution for God. It's not like God said, well, the, the Jews were my first pick, and so they've rejected me, so I'll, just, I'll settle for second best, and that's the rest of the world. No, Paul, Paul quotes Isaiah 49.6 back in Acts 13. He quotes just a portion of it, but I want to read the whole verse to you in its context. God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah, about Jesus. And this is what he says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah in reference to Jesus as the light. And God is saying that that it's too little of a thing that Jesus would merely bring salvation to the Israelites. No, I don't want to save just Israel. I want to save all of the nations. I want the whole world because I created the whole world. And I want the glory, not just from the Israelites, but I want the glory from all the world. And for there to be glory from all the world, all the world needs to hear this message of salvation from and through Jesus. Jesus is the light of all nations. Yes, God had promises with Israel, and yes, He wants to be glorified by Israel, but to stop short at Israel isn't enough for God. God desires glory from the world, from all people, including you. Including you. And here's where you fit into the story. Because the Jews rejected this message of salvation we sit here 2,000 years later and this message of salvation through Jesus is still being proclaimed to Gentiles. I would bet that the majority of us in this room are non-Jewish people that are now hearing the message of salvation. And so as this message of salvation is proclaimed to you, week after week, we talk about Jesus and we talk about how he died and how he rose from the grave and how whoever believes in him may be forgiven of my sins and be justified and may be right, uh, may be declared innocent before an almighty God. You have a choice to make. And the choice is one of two things that happens in Acts chapter 13. Right? Will, will you be like the Gentiles in Acts 13 and will you rejoice and will you glorify God and will you believe in Jesus or will you be like the Jews who thrust it aside? Will you be like the Jews who, who, who say, Jesus, get out of my way because I don't want you ruining my life. I don't want you ha- having any say in what I do with my life. I, I refuse to submit to you and so I'm gonna thrust you off to the side. Those are your two options. And there may be someone sitting in this room who has thrust aside the message of Jesus for too long. I encourage you not to leave today without making that decision to believe and glorify Jesus. And I promise you that you are not too late. I assure you that you are not too late. As of right now. Unfortunately, it's actually not too late for Israel. God's not done with Israel yet. And I want to end on a positive note with the Jewish people because it, I've been harsh on them, have I not? But the biblical narrative, the whole biblical narrative, teaches us uh, what happens in the end, right? Uh, that Israel, while it seems as though they've forfeited their blessing and thrust aside their inheritance. There's actually great hope yet for Israel because God's not done with them and he never has been. Back in Romans 11, in the passage that we read, if you were to keep reading, and even in our verse, Paul suggests that the reason for Israel's rejection was for the salvation message to reach the Gentiles but then he goes on to say something odd. He explains in the passage that salvation coming to the Gentiles would in turn make Israel jealous. And then he makes this strange comment about how much of a blessing their full inclusion would be. And so what's, what's exactly going on here in the great story of, of, of God's narrative? Well, this is what it looks like. An illustration. Imagine, if you will, um, that a set of parents have decided to give their only child an inheritance. And this inheritance comes in the form of a house. And this is not just any house. This is a mansion. This, this mansion has everything you could ever ask for or wish for in a house. It is extravagant. And they give their only child this house as a gift. And it's free. There's nothing that this child did or needed to do to receive this mansion. It was purely out of the goodness and the grace of the parents' hearts that they gave their child a house. It's an amazing gift. And then out of nowhere, the child rejects the gift. He turns it down. He says, I don't want the house. I don't need the house. I'm going to go do my own thing. Well, what do the parents do? shockingly, they take the deed to the house and they go out on the streets and the first homeless guy they see, they say, here, take this house as a free gift. It's yours now. And as the homeless man moves into the house, the child grows jealous and says, wait a minute, I've changed my mind. I want that. I long for that. I lost something, and I want it back. Here's the logic. God enters into a relationship with Israel through a covenant that he made with Abraham. Israel rejects God and rejects his message of salvation, and so God, as a result, turns and offers it to the Gentiles. The Gentiles accept it, And enter into this relationship with God. And it causes Israel to grow jealous and desire him back. And according to Paul in Romans 11. And really throughout the prophets. There will be a day. That a good portion of Israel will turn back to God. As they have seen what they lost. And they will be saved. Not under the umbrella of the old covenant of the law but under the umbrella of the new covenant, the covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you for um, just your grand story and how we fit in it, Lord. I praise you, Father, that you are mindful of us and that you have grafted us in, according to to Romans, Lord, into your family, into a new Israel. Lord, we we praise you for the way that you have orchestrated your salvation of all people from all kinds, from all nations, Lord, and we, we lift those nations up who either have not heard your word or have rejected it. Father, in the grand scheme, would people in droves come to know you and praise you and glorify you, Father? Thank you for allowing us to be a part of the great story of you reconciling creation back to yourself. I pray, Father, that as we give you glory, that your praise would be on our lips forever because that is your ultimate goal to be glorified in all things, and you will be glorified as the nations praise your name. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.